0: Listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness.
1: Today, my guest is Denise Johnson. She's a medium clairvoyant uh, that resides currently um, on Salt Spring Island. And She's recently read, uh, written a book called How to Win the Lottery, and I believe she has another book um, that's up and coming. And uh, We're going to talk to Denise today about her spiritual path as a medium and her connection with a master who's passed on by the name of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. So Denise, I've read your uh, book, How to Win the Lottery. Let's tell the audience how you began your spiritual journey. When looking back, when do you think that was?
0: Okay, thanks, Lauren, and thank you uh, for having me on the show today. Hello to everybody. My pleasure. (laughs) There's been, I would say, phases in my life where it kind of erupted and then took a back seat and then erupted. I remember as a little child feeling very, very connected um, to that that couldn't be seen or even within myself and then, you know, going through teenage years and things like this. Um, but then things really came to a head for me. It would have been the year that I was 28. I'm now 42. Um, and it was a series of dreams about Chogyam Trumpa, <laughs> who I didn't know at that time. I didn't have any idea who it was. Who really, really uh, came into my mind. Uh, the dreams were so surprising. And I would have to say that that was a major catalyst uh, to send me searching.
1: Hmm. Um, What do you think that meant?
0: Looking back now, I would say that it has to do with uh, karmic connections uh, from another lifetime, um, as well as the work that I came in to do in this life, um, so that the two of them were kind of, uh, what would you say, coming together in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a long journey of remembering what I was supposed to do, because You know, I was born and I couldn't remember. There was always a sense of something. (laughs) But I just couldn't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I would say that um, with those dreams from from Trumpa, um, as confusing as they were, that was part of what set the whole ball rolling for me, trying to figure this out, to know why, what did this mean. Um, And then life just kind of took its own turn, and events just kind of kept unfolding and only to discover that I had been on this amazing journey all along, even when I didn't know it.
1: You know, um, often in spiritual um, teachings or spiritual talks, people talk about not remembering. Um, Do you think that at some point we will remember?
0: Yeah, you know, I've thought about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I keep coming back to, what keeps coming back to me is the analogy of the lotus rising out of the mud to the point where I'm actually getting to the place within myself. Um, I guess this would have to do with self-forgiveness about forgetting, that when we're born we do forget. And so part of our journey is waking up to the essence of spirit within the confusion of our ordinary life, that that's all part of it. Whereas for a long time I would say that I felt upset about having confusion upset about having disruption. Now I kind of think that perhaps this whole journey doesn't happen without that. It kind of rises up out of that. And again, that's the whole beauty of the symbology or the image of the lotus rising out of the mud. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Early on, um, I'd like to talk about your dream, if I may. Um,
0: <laughs> <Sure>.
1: It's yeah <laughs> the, it, the way uh, you describe it, um, hmm, you know, it's—I I don't want to describe it or judge it as it being odd, um, but it's the, one of your earlier dreams. And people, you'll have to read the book to, 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 <laughs> to you know, when when drunkpa Trungpa was—he um, first sort of showed up.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, I had grown up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Okay. So I had actually heard wind of his community arriving, and had actually watched changes happen in the south end of the city, where I had lived more run-down neighborhoods. Suddenly there were flower boxes and things like this. So there was natural interest. Um, but myself, personally, I had been raised Roman Catholic. I sang in the choir. Uh, my parents, uh, very much a working-class family, very Christian-based. So I wasn't too sure about it all or what to think of it. And then when I had that the, the, the original dream um, with Trojan Trumpa, it was just so bizarre and so strange the way that this man... and you know, these uh, brocade outfits, all of a sudden, you know, I was in this room with him. And uh, I I didn't know who he was. And the luminosity of that dream and the rituals and what he had said to me, I I woke up, you know, and I just kind of sat up in my bed and went, what was that? And I I couldn't make sense of it. So all I could do was um, get my dream journal. I had been doing that practice for many years. And so I just sat up and I drew his face. And I wrote down what happened in the dream and the words that were said to me. And then, you know, like everyone, I tucked my journal away and forgot about it <laughs> like that. Um, but it was definitely uh, shocking enough to really get my attention. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, it took me a whole It was one year plus one day um, after that dream that I saw uh, Chogin's photograph for the first time. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's the guy from my dream. (laughs) Because, you know, after the first dream, then there was another one, then there was another one. You know, I still get them. They're not as frequent as what they were in those early days. But, um, you know, when I find myself in a place of really wondering which way to go next, somehow he shows up, (laughs) for which I'm very grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, the first time, I would say that the dream was more upsetting for me. It didn't make sense. I couldn't piece it together in my waking reality but now looking back, I'd say, well, I guess that's what had to happen in order to get my attention.
1: I see. M- yeah, because it it, it it is quite... And I think now that when I think about this lineage, that's what he'll do. He'll do something kind of out of the ordinary. I've never met the man, <laughs> but uh, it seems like he does things out of the ordinary to get your attention. Would you say?
0: I would have to agree with that, Yeah. And I would say that through the years, the dreams have been no less shocking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he continually sort of, as I read through your book, he, um, you know, showed up in different ways. Like, I know that you've mentioned that, you know, the first elementary school that you attended, that it was the first Shambhala school that was founded by him.
0: Yeah. And um, let's see, the area where my mother was born in Cape Breton hmm where they placed the monastery where Pema Chodron um, now resides. Right. Um, my my uh, second son, he was born on the anniversary of uh, Chodron's Parinirvana, his death, in the same city, <laughs> even though I didn't live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merrick happened to be born there on that day. Um, let's see, oh, it just goes on and on and on. It's really tremendous. Um, through my daily life, you know, not knowing anything, I end up running into his close students and I'll share a little piece of who he was as a person with me. Um, books of his show up at my, uh, at, you know, at my place, at my door, even um, at the boat, <laughs> without me looking for them. Um, they just arrive, and it's just it's kind of been like that to the point where, um, how can I say, I feel like he's not separate from me anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That. Um, that he's right insi- inside of me, although there's still so much for me to learn. Uh, I don't feel that he's outside of me anymore the way that I did when the dreams first started happening. Um, it's become more of, I don't understand our connection. I'm not sure where it originates, why he's making time for the likes of me. But there's definitely something going on here. <laughs> 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 he's always around me in the strangest places. Um, in the strangest circumstances, there he is. And now I'm having a similar experience. He has an incarnation um, that's in Tibet. I believe he's 21 now. And um, I'm having same sorts, similar experiences with his incarnation, where I'm running into all these connections with him. So, um, And I recently sent a copy of the book off to him to Tibet. I hear it's on its way. So that was kind of like uh, coming full circle, if you will, from a stranger in dream time to writing a book about it to being able to somehow get that book Book to find its way to him in Tibet um, as the incarnation. Hmm. So that's been a, a highlight of this year for me. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'd like to continue talking about Chogham a little bit later, and, and as well as your book. But let's—well, actually, let's ha- talk about how uh, the whole uh, mediumship came about. Was that before Chogham Tserpo or was he the person that showed you this is the gift?
0: Ah, uh, let's see. Um, I didn't realize that I had been very clairvoyant throughout my life. Um, You know, when you're born like that, you don't understand that not everybody's seeing or hearing what you are. Mm -hmm. And then there was a point in my life where I was worried that maybe I was schizophrenic because why was I hearing all these, like this voice? And Mm -hmm. that you know, you hear talk about, oh, if you're hearing voices, it's schizophrenia. And so then that was a big concern for me, especially the years when I was a single mother. So I never said a word about it. Um, I remember going for psychic readings and seeing uh, one medium in particular, and they would all look at me and say, well, geez, you know, you're totally clairvoyant. You're a medium. Um, and also uh, think going, I did one evening at the Spiritualist Church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the medium came over and spoke to me. And, you know, it, it didn't really resonate with me at that time. I thought it was all kind of flaky and weird, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it really came through to, to pass with the um, getting the cancer, Um, spending the time in the coma, having the near-death experience, meeting the beings in the white light that I was hearing and going, What? This is a voice I've been hearing all my life? And they're like, Yeah, we know. You were supposed to start doing this when you were 18. And I was like, I was? And so that was a real um, (laughs) shake-up, if you will, so that when it was uh, asked of me, you know, Well, this is what you come in to do, and they showed me doing the readings, Um, You know, are you going to do this for people or not? Do you want to try? And I was like, well, of course I do. And I found myself back in my body and living against all odds. But I would say that um, the first person showed up for reading three hours after uh, a a three-and-a-half-month hospital stay. And they showed up at an anonymous location and had traveled from another area of remote B.C. And when I saw them at the door, I was still in my hospital gown, you know. <clears throat> very weak, and I just knew. It's like, well, this is beyond me. The contract that I made was real. Um, it wasn't hallucinations. It all really happened. That's how this person found me. So I don't know how this reading's going to work. I don't know what's going to happen, but somehow there's a deck of cards here. The person's here. So I'm just going to sit down and see what happens. So it was uh, a moment of a lot of trust. And, you know, somehow it all worked out, and she seemed to get the messages that helped her. And, um, you know, my, my common experience as a medium is that afterwards I don't really remember the messages. Uh, it just kind of flows through me in the moment. So I was kind of surprised that she was so uplifted and felt so happy because it hadn't made much sense to me, and I wasn't really sure what we had talked about. <laughs> and then, you know, it's just been like that, and someone has shown up every day since. I mean, I live on the ocean. It's kind of an amazing um, experience how it all happens. And um, so I guess it would say that I was born this way and didn't know it. I was extremely frightened and resistant to my path, And through the grace of many angelic beings in this universe, I was blessed with an experience of grace that some people would think was horrific. Through that, the confusion about who I was and why I was here got burned away. And now I'm very, um, what's the word, overjoyed, grateful, humbled, um, to be able to be a medium, to be able to help people in this capacity. Yeah.
1: Now, um, how did that first lady find you? I don't know. You don't know?
0: I don't know. I don't know how anybody finds me. <laughs> and we've experimented. We've taken the boat from one area where the word has gotten out and traveled the coast of B.C. and just randomly show up. Um, well, one place was the city of Victoria, right? And just see what's going to happen. And it usually takes about three days. And then somebody will show up, um, even um, like an experience now in other places, somehow um, rowboats, other sailboats, kayaks, um, will show up at our boat looking for a reading. How did they find me? I don't know. <laughs> so um the well, whole thing has been kind of mysterious.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, and I can understand that because at this point, you know, people find you through word of mouth, perhaps having kind of like, you know, you know, having a conversation with someone, you know, having, you know, and them just briefly mentioning it and all that. Right. Yeah. But that first one remains a mystery to you.
0: It's a total mystery to me, but it ties into another great mystery that we had that's not separate that I would love to share with you, um, was when I was in the hospital um, and I went into the coma, they had me on life support in a separate room, and they eventually put me in the room where they put people that are preparing um, to die. So, you know, they kind of shipped me off there, and they contacted um, my husband, Rory, to say, you know, it's not looking good, the uh, vital organs aren't starting again, and you should contact the Cancer Society for grief counseling for you and your, and your family. Um, something's gone terribly wrong, and we don't think she's going to make it. Now, at that time, we had just arrived on this coast. We were on Quadra Island. We just moved aboard the boat. We had completely torn it apart. It was in renovation. And we had nothing. And so somebody loaned Rory a cell phone, one of the and their older phone that you could get the top-up card from Telus, you know, $10 top-up card. And he was using that to contact me because I was in the hospital in Campbell River, and he was with the children on Quadra Island, okay? So now the day that they told him I was going to die, that that cell phone that belonged to someone that he had met who loaned it to him that was on someone else's unlisted phone number, it rang. Well, he says him and my eldest son, Max, they say that it rang about 20 minutes after the hospital called. Rory answers the phone, hello, it's somebody looking for Denise. Um, he's like, well, she's not here, she's in the hospital. Well, I was looking for a reading with her. So he was very puzzled by this. He didn't understand. So he, you know, can I take a message? No. How did you get this number? A friend gave it to me. So he hangs up the phone. A half hour later, the phone rings again. Hi, I'm looking for a reading with Denise. Huh? How did you get this number? Oh, a friend gave it to me. And then this went on. Um, The first phone call, the first day, he got two phone calls. The second day, he got up to four phone calls. And then for two and a half weeks, he received four phone calls a day, all different people, all looking for a reading with Denise, all of them saying a friend sent me. Now, I had never been able to communicate with him that I'd had a near death experience like this. He didn't know I made a contract this way. So he wasn't understanding why the calls were coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, because I was separate from him and the kids, didn't know that the calls were coming. This was explained to me after I got out of the hospital. And it's the reason why my family was so supportive when I said, Oh, my God, you, you know, we have to stop everything that we're doing. Our life is about to change. Um, I have to give these readings. And I'm doing them by donation. And we just have to trust that the universe is going to care for us. But because that telephone had rang like that, they were able, you know, to say, well, there's something to this, (laughs) because nobody could explain it. And then the person showing up at the door at at, at my hotel room three hours after my release from hospital. So for me, that was just another sign of there is so much more at work than we can see. There's so much more going on always than we understand, and we're not alone in this. Hmm. So it's just kind of been
1: like that ever since. So, Denise, I'm really um, interested about uh, what the people in your dream said about you being 18 years old and that you were, quote-unquote, supposed to follow your path at that point. And when you look back at your life, do you think you know why that didn't happen?
0: Um, Yeah, that was part of, um, let's see, the learning of the near-death experience. Um, before I got to the white light, there's this passing through. Um, for me, the root of cancer was uh, was despair. A lot of people say cancer is related to anger, but in my case, it was despair. Um, from this life, as well as a bunch of previous lives, were kept becoming more exponential. Um, and then, so when we're first leaving the body um, at the moment of death, you know, when it's all shutting down, I should say that there's this um, moment where all the things that are trapped in our heart come to bear and we relive them and i Mm. saw um, the main thing that really really struck me was an event that happened when i was on my first day of school and i was very nervous and this is the school that's now the shambhala school at that time it was called alexander mccates in halifax nova scotia and a little boy was beaten up by a group of older boys and the um, teachers at recess did nothing to help And that really traumatized me and made me terrified of people. And then there were other events like this through the life where um, perhaps things happened to to, to give me a sense of despair inside. I interpret it that way, Um, things with my family life, um, things that you witness in the world, you know, it's a dark age, things like this. And so I learned that it was those things that put so much hurt and fear inside of me that actually blocked my heart, that actually could not allow it to open to feel the natural existing love that i had for everyone it Mm -hmm. was blocked off by fear Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and so i would say that um that in in my personal experience that cancer was a total liberation for me um everything that happened you know um while being traumatic it was also very liberating because i got to see that that actually the only thing that had ever blocked me Was fear because of experiences that I interpreted as painful and trapped in my own heart and I think that this is something that that, that's waiting for all of us at the moment of death if we don't work on our stuff and that this is the whole point of the beauty of walking a spiritual path while we're living um, is that we can deal with these things, clear it out find our joy and not have to deal with it at the moment of death Mm -hmm. that we can clear it up while we're alive
1: you know some some listeners might think about god that's just a that's just a lot of work to do <laughs> you know on a daily basis you know i i understand that because i guess i'm on some sort of path i guess uh, in the same lineage as you are um but i guess um, my question then would be then you know in those times of frustration what would you you know if things aren't going right for someone let's just say you know they're not getting any clarity Things aren't working out, perhaps in the, um, you know, in the uh, in what society expects us. Mm-hmm. What would you th- say to that?
0: Oh, I would say shamatha meditation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely for everything. Mm-hmm. Shamatha for for life. Shamatha for love. Shamatha for quality of life, for presence, and also shamatha um, for facing bad news shamatha for stress, shamatha for facing death, shamatha for the bardo, shamatha for the after-death experience, because awareness does remain. Um, so that for me personally now in my life, um, the word shamatha makes me extremely happy. It's like the aspirin for everything. It doesn't mean that you don't feel it. Um, it doesn't mean that somehow we transcend our, our humanness. It means that we have a place to go with it. We have a tool. We have something that we can do to help us on the spot that nobody can take from us and then to me the real beautiful part of it all lauren is that it actually travels with us after the body's gone all my life i had wondered what was death did death hurt Mm. Um, was there anything after right what was the experience of dying and i would say that after the near-death experience the moment of death is like falling asleep You can stay up and try very hard to monitor the moment when you fall asleep. But the truth is, is you're going to fall asleep and not sure what moment it happened. So the moment of death is very much like that. But the mind does reawaken later, and you might think that you're dreaming. But if we're practicing shamatha throughout our daily life, it's amazing. It's there for us then, too.
1: Um, One thing, actually, that I wanted to talk about, um, again, going back to what you're saying, because I pick up on things every now and then Um, but the cancer part you talked about despair Uh, a couple of things come up Um, I'm thinking manifestation and did you go through you know a period of blame and how why is this happening to me the manifestation part
0: Oh, Lauren, thank you so much for asking me that. This is a point that I really hope to get this message out there with anyone okay. that has cancer or, or that loves somebody with cancer yes. or is worried about cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, through all of that, I would have to say that many of the New Age philosophies and ideas to deal with sickness yes. left me in a very self-punishing place of, I obviously can't deal with my anger to get rid of it. Right. And I have since talked with many, many cancer people, different stages of it. Mm -hmm. And they've all told me the same thing.
1: This is what I'm getting at. I'm glad that you brought that part
0: up. (laughs) Thank you. I feel like this is so important. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, when I got out of the hospital, my main concern was, geez, I better get the root of this anger out of me or it's going to come back. Right. That led me to a Tibetan monk that's living in Courtney, Um, At the Sherab Chamaling Center, his name is Geshe Yongdong, Mm -hmm. and he studied at the Dalai Lama's monastery. So Geshe happened to be visiting and giving a teaching on Quadra Island, and I went to see him. And I asked him, please, what do I have to do to get this anger out of me so that I don't get the cancer again? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me with such love and and compassion, Mm -hmm. and he said, well, what makes you think that the roots of it are in this life? Oh, really? And I said, well, everything I read tells me it's anger. Right. actually, and he said, the roots of this will go back so far that it's pointless to even see where the seeds were first planted. Mm -hmm. The fruitioning happened in this life, so just be happy that you've cleared it. And that, for me, was like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was the first (laughs) thing that I heard that didn't make me punish myself more or feel even more hopelessness and despair, Mm -hmm. that I couldn't fix it, Mm -hmm. that I was somehow so flawed. And, I mean, even to this day, I have people that will show up for readings and say, well, how can you be doing this work? You obviously have unresolved anger. You're a cancer. But, you know, you, you've had cancer. <laughs> and I just laugh, and then I remember geshe words to me, and I'll say, what makes you think the roots of it originate in this life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I would say that, in the end, um, it's led me to this place of thinking of the word Dharma and Dharma's truth. And then that set me to things I was heard in my childhood. You know how the truth shall set us free? hmm so I would say that anything that is a false dharma or that is untrue, when we go to use it at a time of great turmoil and suffering, it will give us more suffering. The truth shall set us free. So if we're suffering and we hear the truth of something, it is an immediate alleviation to suffering. So all those self-help books, all those new ways of looking at cancer, made me suffer more. When I heard what made you think the roots of it are in this life i was completely set free
1: mhm T- yeah no, no I feel go like ahead that's so important. <laughs> yes well uh, you know in uh, um what would you say to someone hmm, uh, in an ideal world let me rephrase this in an ideal world uh, have now that you've gone uh, through cancer um what would, you, what would you love to change in the way we're dealing with cancer?
0: I would love to see uh, more recognition um, for the metabolic food therapy as it was given to me through the healer, Adam Huber. I would like to see people um, not look for the roots of self-punishment and blame for the cancer. Um, and... I would also like this understanding um, of, well, it's a consciousness. So, you know, you have a consciousness inside your body. How are you going to communicate and relate with it? That it's not a bad experience. That if you get cancer, you're not flawed. You're not less than. You haven't done something wrong to be punished. More like it's um, an epidemic in our time. In that many people will experience it and how do we have the most compassion for the whole situation how do we move past self-blame and a sense of futility and fear but to say actually i can welcome all experience into my life that there's something in this for me to learn this is going to make me a more well-rounded individual mm-hmm. and how do i use this in a proactive way rather than feeling why did this happen to me or you know, I'm so screwed that I can't fix it, or any of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Very beautiful. Uh, I just want to read a little portion of your book where you say, The gift of the pain was the white noise it produced, was louder than the noise of my mind's discursive thinking, including other small pains in the body. For the first time in my life, I could not hear myself think. It was incredible. <laughs> and to me, when I was reading that, I thought, Oh my gosh, you know. Just to turn the mind off.
0: It was really amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing. Now, I had to have an organ taken out of my body with no follow up pain medication um, to hit that state. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that perhaps other people could find it on a meditation retreat. <laughs> Not have to go so severe. Okay. Um, but that, you know, that even questions our notion of pain and how we take a look at pain. How do we relate with pain? The pain in and of itself is not a bad thing. Actually, it can be used as a tool for liberation. So that in the end, all these things that happened, that so many people would say, Oh, that's awful. Please, God, may that never happen to me. I would say it was the best amazing thing that's ever happened in my life. It was filled with grace. I've learned so much, and I actually got to experience a quiet mind. Now, I went to Geshe-la again, Geshe Yongdong about this, because... An interesting thing happened, and that was, as my life force increased in my body, the discursive thinking in my mind also increased exponentially. So many people out there would say, oh, God, I can't get my mind to shut up. It's terrible. I would say, oh, that means that you have a lot of life force. <laughs> because as the life force wanes, it gets quieter and quieter. So don't think of it as a terrible thing. Actually, it's a sign of vitality, right? Your, your own life force. Um, and then it's how do we harness it. Um, so that all these things, you know, that, that could be seen as bad, actually for me they were really wonderful, and the pain also, and the spaciousness of mind that's under all the noise of our talk. So um, I went to see Geshe Yongdong and I said to him, you know, I feel like Alice sliding down the hole, going down that well because as I'm getting stronger my mind is getting louder and busier and busier and I'm losing the quietness and I can't make it stop. So I could literally hear my fingernails screeching on the sides Sides of the wall uh, of the well because I didn't want to slide back down into the hole of my discursive thinking. Mm-hmm. And once again, he gave me he set me free. Well, he cracked up laughing for one, and he said, "Your problem is is that you're suffering from an attachment, and that what you experienced was a state of grace. And you don't know if you're going to have that again in this life or not, but you know the goal. So use that to encourage yourself to keep practicing." And then right away, I was fine with where I was at. Once again, you know, it was just so simple, and then I was able to let go of it and say, "Well, okay, maybe, you know, this is what this is why I'm practicing to reach the state, and maybe it will happen, and maybe it won't. But if I keep practicing, it's still good for my daily life. It, it is going to be of benefit regardless." Mm-hmm. So letting go of the attachment to the state was difficult.
1: Right. Tell me something in your um, in your thoughts. Um can someone be too aware? And what I mean by that is when we have like a high level of awareness, they're usually that usually brings up a lot of suffering because they might notice um things, you know, that might uh be bothersome to them. So when you're on the spiritual journey, you're trying to work things through uh bef- before the day that we pass on to the next dimension, is there a point where you think we become too aware?
0: I think there's a point where we get too involved in our head, and mm-hmm. too analytical, mm-hmm. and that's um, even a big danger of meditational experiences, uh, spiritual experiences. That right. Try to hang on to it and overanalyze. Right. I really like what Trump or Rinpoche had to say about that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that um, if you're still having any degree of self-awareness, yes, you're still caught in the thinking mind. That you're, you're that you're not embodying pure awareness yet. Because when that moment of pure awareness comes, mm-hmm. you lose all sense of yourself as a perceiver. And I would say that that was the state that I had um, after the hysterectomy, um, with the pain, was that there was, there was just uh, no, the, it, the pain just blotted out everything, so that there was no distinction of me. There was just this white noise and this quiet. Um, and, again, I haven't experienced that since. You know, it lasted for three and a half weeks, <laughs> and uh, now it's gone. And uh, so I take that as a sign of, oh, life force is returning. But, um, yeah, I think that if we're thinking about it, then we're not actually really there, that we've fallen back into the trap of our analytical process.
1: Mm-hmm. A quote by Chogem Trungpa Rinpoche. And, Denise, if you, could, if you would comment uh, uh, after I uh, say it. There is no other way of attaining basic sanity than the practice of meditation. Absolutely none. The evidence for that is that for 2,500 years since the time of the Buddha, down through the lineage of enlightened teachers from generation to generation, people have gained liberation through the practice of meditation. This is not a myth. It's reality. It actually did exist. It does exist. It did work. It did happen. It does work. But without the practice of meditation, there is no way.
0: Wow, I love that. I, I would have to agree that in my own life, mm-hmm. that, that has certainly rung true. There's a definitive moment of before I began practicing meditation and then the journey after. And that you can actually see the line between, you know, before and after. And I also noticed, too, that, um, for example, with the readings, um, that right away you can tell who practices meditation regularly and who doesn't.
1: Mm.
0: It, it becomes very apparent just sitting with them um, by the ability to take in information. Um, the way that, that, their water, um, that their body feels to me, it feels like there's cool water that runs through the body as they're receiving the information, mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, there's less distractive movement, um, less eye movement, less body movement, that they sit very still and listen and absorb it. So that, that was like another area where I would have to agree. And then I really saw it when I was in the hospital because, you know, I spent over three months in there and met all kinds of people. And um, it was the evening janitor that was a meditation practitioner. And we just kind of like noticed each other right away. So it was very natural to start talking. And after that, he began to visit me every single evening. And it was really amazing. Um, And I felt that you know, to be sitting in the hallway or in the lounge, to be so sick and to be seen practicing meditation was kind of like the only thing that I could give to everybody in there. And even now, ever since I've come back from the hospital, the one thing that I say to my three children always is, you know, it's not about what material things I can leave you when I die. Actually, the only thing of any value that I have to give you is the sitting instructions. That's all I have. Mm-hmm. Nothing else will go, go with you after you die. Everything else will remain. The instructions, if you practice and plant them in the ordinary mind stream, will be there for us. We, have I thought, right, that it actually it, it transcends this life and that there's nothing else I can give my children that will do that. So I would agree very much with Trump Rinpoche's quote and say that in my own life, through my personal experience, that has definitely rung true for me.
1: Um, as a medium, what do you think you've learned the most?
0: Oh, that I don't know anything. <laughs> 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 my job every day is to sit and channel messages on things that I either didn't believe in or that I had opposing opinions to, and it really showed me how opinionated I was, that I thought I knew all these things, mm-hmm. but actually it was diluted opinion based on my senses and my life experiences and my own attitudes and ideas. Um, the readings, every single day, it just shows me that I, I don't know anything. I don't know the universal scheme of things, the bigger picture, so that I've become um, a lot less opinionated. I've become very reluctant to discuss a lot of things in my life where I would have been very, you know, rah-rah, shish goombah, waving placards and protesting and getting my, you know, my ideas out there. Now I think, really, I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know the truth. And so I choose to just sit and be quiet a whole lot more, which is a radical change for me. Mm. <laughs> 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 um,
1: how has uh, this lineage um, affected your life? And if you could describe the lineage in one word, what, how would you describe it?
0: Compassionate. Mm -hmm. When I think about, well, you know, that was that first dream that I had with Chögyam Trungpa. He said, you know, don't respect me, respect the lineage, the fact that it has been done in this way, the same way, in an unbroken chain for so long. To be part of that is an honor and a gift. And at that time, I didn't know what the word lineage meant. Now, um, after these years and, you know, study and research and reading on the Internet and all these things, I would have to say that the compassion of those individuals to practice meditation their whole life, but then to preserve the instructions the exact same way that um, that the Buddha gave them, you know, and, and to actually devote their whole life to keep it uncorrupted. That, to me, is the most compassionate thing ever, the fact that I could receive those instructions and have them through the time of such great turmoil and difficulty, pain in my life, that I had a place to go with it, and that it actually worked. Um, that it actually helped me. Um, Yeah, so compassion.
1: (laughs) Okay. And if there's um, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Thank you, Lauren. Um, I would like to share that um, death is not an end to itself, that awareness does remain. When the body falls away, we are left with our bare awareness. Um, And it's much like dreaming. Um, you know, the way that we wake up in a dream, and it seems very real, uh, the um, experience of dying is very much like that, um, so that we are left with our own mind, and therefore we do have a responsibility to it, to learn about it, to understand it, and to work with it. You know, what does it do? What is it really? And how do we incorporate spirit or a Buddha nature or a higher self into this mind-body complex? that that's our bigger journey, Um, is the fact that, you know, that Buddha nature or spirit is right in the body, but that also that there's two different mind streams that I experienced through through what happened to me was that the mind stream of my ordinary day was not the same as the mind stream that came from higher self and spirit when I was out of the body. It was completely different. So I would say don't trust your mind too much in what you think, not to be too rigid in your ideas, opinions, and philosophies. Understand that spirit, Buddha, nature, higher self, Christ consciousness is in the body, located in the center of the heart, and that when this body falls away, the awareness that we had as a baby before we could talk, that's the awareness that's with us. And we see that we're not this body at all. And when we really come to understand that, oh, it's so wonderful, it changes everything we don't feel trapped and limited by the physical you know and by our mind and by our own uh, regimented ideas and routines the same way anymore um, so you know in my life I've gone through periods of like I said being a, a, a Roman Catholic um, periods of atheism um, new age philosophies uh, finally brought me around to Buddhism and through it all it was that um, you know awareness really does remain after the body falls away Miracles happen all the time, and that there really are angels and loving beings, but we have to pray and ask them to intervene on our behalf because Earth is a free will zone. So if we don't use our free will to ask them to intervene for us, they can't, no matter how much they want to. And then, last and not least, definitely not not least, is um, it's hard for an ordinary mind to fathom the depths and love and loyalty and dedication of a real spiritual master and that if we receive such a blessing to connect with one in our life we should be so grateful
1: hmm. well thank you um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show you're a beautiful speaker and um, it's been a pleasure also knowing you in the time that I have
0: Lauren it's totally been my delight and always, I really love speaking with you. Thank you so much for this time today. And thank you to everyone that's been listening.
1: Thank you, Denise. So Denise's website is www.oceanofclarity.com and uh, that's where you can contact her for either a reading or even a copy of uh, her book. It's an absolute in- inspiration and it's uh, an, a great idea if you want to gift someone with this book. There's a lot of insight and just about everyday living and how how we appreciate our lives.
0: Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.